Have you ever wondered what kind of world Jesus was born into? Or how the legendary Han Dynasty almost came to an end hundreds of years before it actually did? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting TGNReview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. Brought to you via London and New York City, this is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my illustrious co-host, Sir Patrick Foote. Patrick, how are you this evening? I am wonderful this evening. I am good. My body is good. My spirit is good. But the weather, not not so good over here. You know, as English people, we're obsessed with the weather, and I've always tried to not live by that stereotype. But when it goes from sunny one day to pouring down of rain the other day, it kind of gets the better of you. Do you know what I mean? I certainly can understand how that might be disruptive, to be sure. But (laughs) we're finally here. We're finally doing this. We are finally here doing it. This is so exciting to finally start this journey. We've been talking about it for so long now, and to finally have it here, and to have it in a way people are listening to it, 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 it's, it's crazy. I'm so happy to finally be doing this. It is truly mind-boggling, to be sure. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. before we kick it off, we have two questions to answer. What is AD history, and who are we? So, AD history is an idea I had years ago now, and Paul, you have very kindly helped shape it into what it is. But fundamentally, that initial idea I had has always been the same, and that's telling the story from 1 AD to right now, HD as we like to call it. And yeah, so every episode, we are going to be looking at some uh, big events that was happening in the 10 years of history. So in this first episode, we're going to be looking at 1 to roughly 10 AD, next episode 11 to 20 AD, and so on. And just as we implied, weaving this big epic tapestry of human history, of world history even, even, just how we got from there to where we are now, looking at the characters who appeared, who left behind the empires that rose and fell, All of that going up to now, it's definitely a big task, but Paul, do you think we're up to it? Well, let's put it this way. When you first approached me with the idea, as you had it in mind at the time, I saw it as Mm. one of those supreme challenges that I simply (laughs) could not possibly pass up, in addition to the fact of getting to work with somebody who is both an excellent friend as well as someone whose work I admire immensely. And at some point, we'll tell... The story of how that all came to be but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the next question is who are we so yeah my name is patrick foot um i imagine a lot of you guys listening may very well know me from name explain and yeah on that channel on youtube i do exactly what it sounds like i do i explain how things got their names and with that comes a lot of uh, geography comes a lot of linguistics comes a lot of like a uh, culture comes a lot of religion even and of course it comes with a lot of history and I do have a huge love of history. I mean, it's probably like one of my second favorite loves after language. So the YouTube channel covers a language and this podcast gets to itch, no, gets to scratch my history itch. And that's really exciting to finally have an outlet to talk more directly about history and not just names in history. And I started doing a name explain about three, just over three years ago now. 
And it started off as just a small thing I was making in my uh, parents' bedroom, uh, my bedroom in my parents' house. I wasn't just sitting in my parents' bedroom. And then from that, it's just evolved into my full-time job and what I do for my main living now. So it's just, it's been really crazy how just sitting in my room in my parents' house has created this career for me. And yeah, and now I want to take to this next step, not even a step forward, I'd say a step to the side and make this new venture into the world of AD history. But Paul, that, that that's just me. You're, 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 you're one half of this podcast. What about yourself? Well, my name is Paul K. DeCostanzo. I am the managing editor for TGNR at tgnreview.com. And my story now is coming up on four years old. And at some point, I am certain we can get into the more interesting details of this because I, like many people nowadays, have always found an interesting path into something that they didn't necessarily expect. And should we ever get to that point in time, I'm more than interested in in telling that story because it's quite epic and certainly you know that story, Patrick. Yeah, but, I know the story. However, uh, in our case, when it comes to history, I love history. For me... My primary specialization comes down to the World Wars, the Cold War, 20th century history, but I particularly love the Second World War. I find it absolutely engaging. There's always something new to learn. There's always new perspectives. And so I've been publishing on that now for several years, in addition to having a reader writing Q&A column called the World War II Brain Bucket, which I very much Uh, encourage people to go and read and we'll include a link down in the description for you uh, listening on YouTube but when I when you brought this up to me I thought to myself boy this is a supreme challenge and I've always been very inspired by other YouTube channels and the one in particular in this case Mm. would be the Great War which some of you may be familiar with yes yeah as well as World War two in real time which is also hosted Mm. by the same Indian Idol from the Great War. So I've always found this particular arrangement sensationally satisfying in a way that is is totally ineffable. And now I get to work with somebody whose company I immensely enjoy and whose work I very much admire. And we're doing this. We are. And I just want to say, Paul, I couldn't do this without you. Like I said, I may have had the idea, but you've helped sculpt it. And you are like, I like to consider you the resident super history buff of the two of us. Even though I, I, I do know a fair bit about history, but having you at my side as part of this, as well as being a really good friend, it's just going to help so much more round out our understanding of all of these past 2,000 or so years. Well, you know what? I feel exactly the same way about you, Patrick, mm. and it gives me all the confidence in the world that we're embarking on something truly special. And now mm-hmm. we are. We begin embarking on that right away. Exactly. Paul, I think it's only best. Um, should we, first of all, should we explain how this is going to go down? So you've researched one part of the world and I've researched another part of the world. And I think it's only fair you go first because what you've been looking into, AD history wouldn't exist without what you've been looking into. So what Patrick, of course, is referring to in AD is the Latin translation into English roughly as the year of the Lord. And it's a measuring of an epoch that started a little over 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And it was originally created by a Roman Catholic monk named Dionysius 
in the early 6th century. And at the time, he was not looking to create this epoch of the last 2,000 years. He was actually trying to figure out a new, more accurate calendar for mapping out Easter. However, about 300 years later in medieval Europe, it ended up getting, in his case, posthumously adopted to create this great marker that creates the epoch. Now, obviously, Anno Domini stands for in the year of the Lord, as opposed to what is commonly misunderstood to be after death. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Even though before Christ certainly works out, in the case of A.D., it is the birth of Jesus of Nazareth that marks the beginning of the A.D. period. Now, there's a few things I want to lay down here before we get into this discussion. When we're doing this, there's a challenge to both us as the hosts and you as the listener to do our best to evaluate historical events in the context they occurred, simply because in modernity we are very, very set and very much believe in a certain morality, a certain justice, and the way things should be in our eyes in the present. But as it was so well put at one time, history and the past is like a different country. That is one of my favorite uh, favorite phrases, the past is another country. I, ever since you told me that, because you mentioned that to me where, when we weren't recording in the past, and that's just stuck with me so much. Every time I read about history, I sort of just think that's a different country now, and it really changes your perspective on the past. It makes you sort of think that wasn't us, or like that wasn't that nation doing it now. We can't hold the current nation accountable for what that nation did in the past, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes a ton of sense. Mm. The second thing that we need to keep in mind here is that when it comes to the subject of Jesus, it's very much heavy lifting, if I can put it any way in particular. But there's a few mm. things that I definitely want to dispel right off the bat, and the biggest one is when we talk about we're looking at the historical Jesus, that's not a code word for the real Jesus. It's simply a way of evaluating events within modern historical standards of mm. how we discover and learn and research history. And we're looking at it, like I said, through that historical um, point of view, what would largely be considered postmodern history. Yes, yeah. And it's also important to remember that as time has gone on over the span of humanity, the nature of how history was recorded and the facts that were important have evolved immensely over time. And so how we look at history today is not necessarily how somebody even looked at history 500 years ago. And that's always really important to keep in mind. But ultimately, we understand that this subject is very close to many people. By no means are we telling anybody what to believe or what is right or what is wrong. Those are questions that one can only answer themselves in the peace of their own thoughts to their own satisfaction. But from a historical standpoint, there's a certain way that we have to look at these events as to best understand them and relay them within the best modern understanding of these events, especially in the context that they occurred. Yeah, this podcast isn't the unveiling the real Jesus podcast. Go listen to something else if you want that. Exactly, because the real anything in the past is totally inaccessible, including but mm. not limited to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. So when we begin this, it's intertwined with a bigger piece of history, which is to say the life of Jesus of Nazareth 
has two major narratives going on the entire time that ultimately build an amazing context for the world he lived in and the life he experienced. And mm. in this case, it has to do with the history of the greater Roman Empire, which at this point is under the rule of Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavius, one who is was a, an extremely long-lived ruler of the Roman Empire, the one who managed to unify it under one flag after dealing with a triumvirate that we will get into at a later point in time. And Roman history, in this case, very much includes what we call first century Palestine, which we know mostly today as the modern state of Israel. The borders are slightly different, but that's generally what we're talking about. And so Jesus is born into a world where, in the case of first century Palestine, it had only been incorporated into the Roman Empire for a little over three decades. And it was a very complex place to rule. Now, if you're the Romans, you always seem to prefer to give a certain amount of local autonomy to the various places that are, especially in the far-flung places of the empire, that are tolerant to local beliefs without ultimately uh, bashing the locals over their heads with their own ideas, especially when it comes to religion. In fact, in many ways, the Roman influence in so many places that it existed was far more long-term and a bit more insidious, even though it has a poor connotation, which is to say it did create a, a certain understanding and, and common operating belief in many places as to what the rule of law should be, things like defining property, that kind of thing. So for the most part, that's how the Romans preferred to rule, but it wasn't the only way they ruled. No. Of course, no. there was you know this treaty of friendship where you have a, a client politician ultimately standing in to handle most of the local autonomy issues under some sort of Roman overseer. You know, they didn't entirely give over the wheel, of course. In addition to that, there was also situations where, you know, they would take large populations of a particular territory prisoner and basically hold them hostage to good behavior. And, of course, there was the most direct route, which is stationing a legion in an area that's particularly troublesome, to be sure. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, was basically the Romans' mentality. Boom. I could not have put that any better <laughs> myself, Patrick. And so when it comes to first century Palestine, it's very much what you would call a powder keg. Not that too much has changed in that respect. But it was, it was something of a contradiction in terms, especially if you're looking at it from the Roman point of view, which is to mm. say that it's incredibly important to your empire because it has immense economic links out to the Far East with places like, say, the Han Dynasty. Uh, uh, little plug mm, for later. Yeah. More on them later on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And in addition to that, there is also the view, especially from a Roman sitting in Rome, that also very much looked at a place like first century Palestine or Jerusalem as Papua New Guinea because it was very far off, very important to the people who live there, of course. That's not to dispel that. So it's that kind of contradiction in terms. Like, the best analogy I can almost give you is it's almost the equivalent in some respects to the Panama Canal. Incredibly important to international politics and commerce, but not the most cosmopolitan destination that one can think of. And so Jesus, the infant, is believed by most historians to have been born between 1 B.C. and 4 A.D., 
I think something we need to mention uh, to our listeners is at this point in history, especially in these very, very early days of um, AD, there are going to be some times where we're not exactly sure when something happened, if it happened at all. This is something so far back in history that unfortunately we just aren't as too clued up on it. Some of this stuff we just won't know for sure. Yes, absolutely. And that's part of the challenge of the show that we're doing. So there's a, there's a lot of lot to take in and it's been so long and even despite some of the best scholarship, it's still an evolving puzzle to be sure. People dedicate their whole lives to very specific aspects of trying to understand very difficult to access facts to the history at, at this long ago, even something that is so critical, especially to the history of the West in particular. Essentially, when you're in first century Palestine, and in the case of Jesus, who was most certainly born, raised, and lived as a Jew, that it was very much a powder keg. There were It was very, very diverse, but in this case, the, the two really important populations here, of course, are the Jews that lived there at that time, as well as their Roman counterparts. So in the case of first century Palestine and the Jews themselves, you can't look at them as a, as a monolithic single product. It was a very, very um, differentiated society that was highly segmented based on where they were in class and where they lived. So in this case, there are basically several main groups that are important to know about when you're understanding this landscape. The first, of course, is the Levites. The Levites were the only known remaining tribe of Israel that managed to survive the Babylonian exile, which we'll talk about shortly, and they were able to work in the temple, but under that the priestly class was the Kohims, who were indeed the priests in the temple that is so central to Jewish life at this point in time and to today, who are the ones that are left to those positions. In fact, if you meet somebody today with the last name Cohen, it is a very strong possibility that they ultimately ancestrally relate back to Chohims. So, interesting little note. Look at you explaining names to me. Oh, yeah, yeah well, here we are. <laughs> of course, there is the often heard, and many people have heard it many times, are the Pharisees, which are, were an ancient Jewish sect in first century Palestine. They were quite dynamic players. Uh, they were very much open to oral as well as written obligations to the uh, Tanakh, which was what we today would know as the Old Testament, and they were very much in there involved. The Sadducees were an upper echelon of Jewish society during this Second Temple period. Uh, they were known for rejecting uh, concepts of resurrection, existence of spirits, and they totally dismissed obligation that were oral. They emphasized the paramount importance of what was required in the written law. And once again, the law in this case is the shorthand terminology for the Tanakh. And in addition to that, you also have the far more mysterious Essenes, who not much is known about them, but it is believed that they created the all-important Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran, and that there's a distinct possibility that many of uh, Jesus' teachings may have originated from the Essenes down there. And Qumran's right down there on the Dead Sea. From what we can tell, we're somewhat removed from the rest of them. 
And now they all have their very specific place in first century Roman Palestine Jewish society. And in the case of Jesus, we start talking about the historicity of Jesus's birth. And from a historic understanding, as opposed to a Christological or theological understanding, which is beyond our purview, what we can say about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth is that from a current historical perspective, we don't know anything. No. So the infancy narrative, the story of Christmas, only appears in two of the Gospels of the four that became canon, which in this case are Matthew and Luke. And in this case, you can't take them necessarily from a historical standpoint as a form of rote history. In fact, an infancy narrative, especially when the four Gospels were being written, the four of which are believed to be in a time span usually between 70 AD and 120 AD, was a narrative form of telling the readers or the people that was being read to that the individual that they're talking about was extremely important. And the interesting part about this is Plutarch, when he wrote his biography of Alexander the Great's life, roughly at the same time, mind you, it's believed that he started around 100 AD and he finished it slightly before his death in 125, is that he did the same thing for Alexander the Great. It even included direct connections to Alexander being divine. So we see this kind of pattern and choice of telling this story in other parts of the world that are not far distant from where these communities would have written these Gospels over that same similar period in time. Now, just because we can't use the infancy narratives as rote history, we can look at them because the fact that they exist have a definitive historic impact. So when you're reading, in the case, Matthew specifically, something that is very, very clear amongst most theologians or religious history scholars, anthropologists, you name it, is the fact that it very clearly came out of a Jewish community that was coalescing into Christianity, because Christianity, of course, was born out of Judaism because Jesus was a Jew. When you begin looking at it, you begin seeing exactly how different each of these Gospels are and, and the audiences that they were meant to address. And in the case of Matthew specifically, it is very, very much focused on the Jews. And you can see it in several places. Basically, both Matthew and Luke include a long genealogy to establish the the familial connections that are really important. In the case of Matthew, they go all the way back to Solomon and David because it's believed that the next great figure in Judaism will come from the house of David. And also, when you're reading the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke, well, it's the same general story. They give very, very important differing accounts. They don't include the same major details, even though essentially they're relating more or less the important fact, which was Jesus was born of, uh, of, of Mary and, and Joseph. And in the case of Matthew, you, of course, have the genealogy. In addition to that, when you're looking at the story, you see that it includes three wise men, which were Persian. They were known as magi, you know, wise men. So these magi were going off to visit Jesus, and they stop off to pay their respects to Herod the Great, who was a client king for the Romans in Judea which was part of first century Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth. 
and Herod takes their ultimate destination as a warning. After a meeting with the Magi, Herod decrees going after firstborn sons, two years of age and younger in Judea. This is very reminiscent of Moses in Exodus. Yes, yeah, I was about to say it's very reminiscent of Moses. The Magi then go to visit Jesus in Bethlehem, which has its own importance here in a moment. In addition to the Magi, Joseph is tipped off by the archangel Gabriel that Jesus isn't safe, you have to flee. And they go to Egypt. And they're there for a time before they're once again visited by an angel saying it is now safe for you to return, in which case the story once again picks up at roughly Jesus at 30 years old at what is largely considered the beginning of his ministry. So if you are a Jewish audience coalescing into Christianity, these particular details are going to stick out to you in a very significant way. And as far as the actual birth of Jesus is concerned, there is so much to be said about the fact that he was born in Judea. Because when you look at first century Palestine, especially its Jewish population, the center of their universe is Jerusalem because it possesses the temple. Of course, the first temple that uh, David and Solomon built originally that was destroyed by the Babylonians uh, about six centuries prior to the events of Jesus of Nazareth's life, and then returning about 60 years later, and a centuries-long rebuilding of that temple, which really accelerates at the time of Herod the Great, who basically brings it all the way and aggrandizes it, which is uh, a very big deal. So because the temple is there, the fact that Jesus is born so close to Jerusalem is the other big indicator that this person's important. And if you're a, if you are a Jew, you can come and understand this on a very very straightforward level. And so here we are, Jesus is born, and ultimately they go off to what is known as Galilee, which is the northernmost province of first century Roman Palestine. Just south of that is Samaria, and below that is the all-important Judea, which is the home of Jerusalem and the temple. And of course, when you look at the story from Luke, it doesn't include anything about going off and running away. It was a much, much more straightforward kind of thing, but ultimately communicates the bigger idea that is necessary. So why is this all so important, even if these are being written, you know, the better part of, of a century later? Well, it has to do with how the Jews viewed their place in the world at that time. So if you are a Jew in first century Palestine, regardless of the sect from which you emerge, there's always this very tenuous relationship with the Romans because they're a great power. You know that you could potentially resist them, but you will ultimately not win. In addition to the fact that the Babylonian exile, which happened six centuries prior to this, is a cultural memory which essentially encompasses all the thinking and the worry that comes with their relationship to the Romans, because essentially the Babylonians basically annihilated so much of Jewish culture prior to the exile. And of course, they destroyed the temple. In this case, the big question becomes, if you're a Jew, who's my allegiance to? Is my allegiance to my people and my faith, or is it to Caesar? 
Now, in the case of the Romans, as we were talking about earlier in their preferred form of ruling, they were not going to push their religious ideals on you. They were going to let you do what you did so long as you did it peacefully. They were interested primarily in two things, peace and order and paying your taxes. And if you're, and if you're a first century Jew living in first century Palestine, that is very problematic because it's a question that they are always asking themselves. In addition to that, it's also a very apocalyptic time, in which case there's a lot of on the minds of many people about the possibility of the end of days. And there are many figures that are believed to have gone around. They were charismatic, you know, basically extolling their thoughts on this subject. And so you are inherently in conflict. You're always worried that this thing can entirely fall apart on you. And your mind is both on this world in many cases, as well as the next. And that is a very large recipe for a lot of the conflict that will ultimately follow because they were not wrong about their tenuous relationship with the Romans. We'll see a few episodes down the road exactly how this relationship ended yeah. where this huge yeah. diaspora ultimately ends up in 70 AD when the Second Temple, only after being completed shortly before, ends up getting destroyed again and the Jews being expelled from Palestine altogether. And so this is the world that Jesus is born into. And so when we look at the birth of Jesus, while we can't say anything that is terribly definitive about the facts of the matter insofar as that goes, we can see a lot of the seeds that will ultimately be so important in the background narratives that will ultimately encompass the entirety of his ministry several episodes down the road. And it's our hope that perhaps the audience can take a new appreciation to exactly how all of this fit into the world that it happened. And so, but you have the powder keg, it's ready to go, and Jesus is going to find himself very much in the middle of that, not too far down the line. And that's the interesting thing. You kept on mentioning how it was a powder keg, like a very uh, turbulent time in history, a very turbulent place to be. And do you think possibly that helped Jesus and his followers rise to prominence? In that sort of time, that sort of scenario, people look for answers. Obviously, a few years down the line, Jesus and his followers were there to give people a voice to listen to. Do you think like Jesus as we know him today, was inevitability? Or do you think it was like right place, right time, or at least that helped make it happen quicker, if that makes sense? Well, the best way I can answer that question is kind of in two parts. I think Andrew Roberts, a fantastic military historian, put it best. Nothing in history is inevitable except for a German counterattack. Um, <laughs> and I've always kind of taken to that because it seems to be a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, yeah. So what you're describing is the rise of a charismatic figure at a time when people are looking for some sort of guidance. Yes, that's exactly. Couldn't put it in better words myself, as we just saw. And in this case, there's. it's important to note that, yes, I'm sure that was probably very much a part of it, but it was a hard life. And, and, and for the most part, you know, people could very easily just be cast aside and forgotten and be left to rot. It, it was just the nature of the harsh and overwhelming difficulties that came with living in that place and that time. Uh, but he was not the only one, to be sure. 
Another fantastic example of this would, of course, be John the Baptist. And so there's every reason to believe that, yes, there, there's. I would say there's very little doubt that that was a dynamic that was involved in Jesus's ministry. Um, he's considered to be, um, his teachings in many ways were considered to be apocalyptic, because he was not terribly, and this is not to get into the theology of the subject, it's just how this would, ha- how this plays out in the world they live. Jesus, from the teachings that we're able to ascertain, if you look at what's in the New Testament, and, and you look at that in regards to its teachings, he was not so much interested in this world or even perfecting humanity as we know it. He was far more interested in what came next and preparing for that. In a, in a society where an apocalyptic worldview and, and you know, essentially overall quandary exists anyway, in addition to it being a hard life, somebody like Jesus coming forward and listening and reaching out and showing insofar as as many of the stories in the New Testament are told, is even reaching out to people in society who were left as the dregs. You know, that's the whole—it's not just the healing of a leper, but the whole concept of the Good Samaritan. If you don't understand that Samaritans who lived in Samaria, that central portion, that central province of first century— Palestine were basically considered the lowest of the low, and the idea that the you know the Samaritan would stop on the road and help this person in need was a very de- you know a very demonstrative point that even these people that you consider to be on the bottom rung of society can understand this and do this. What what makes you so special? What makes you so exempt? And so yes, absolutely. There's no doubt that he was very charismatic and. We think about Jesus's movement in terms of his disciples, um, Mary Magdalene, and but you have to expect that it was probably a very large movement. It, it certainly was large enough to get the authorities' attention down the road, but I'm not going to spoil that for now because that's a that's an episode unto itself. But yes, absolutely, Patrick. I I would have to say so because it, it would be hard to imagine it another way. Yeah, it's just it's, it's what came to uh, mind when you were telling me that story. That's sort of really what sort of stuck out for me. That how like this such a volatile land. I mean, like <laughs> I don't know if anyone's like me. My main knowledge of uh, the birth of Christ comes from doing the school nativity when I was a kid. And obviously, when you're a kid, you don't really talk about that sort of side of things. When you're uh, practicing it for your school play as a kid it's just all of a sudden mary is told by the angel gabriel she's pregnant you don't really hear what was going on in the wider world most of the time when you're studying at school like that and what you have just done paul is perfectly set up the scene you painted a portrait of what life was like in like 1 ad in palestine it's truly incredible well i really do appreciate that and we'll be back right after this this is the ad history podcast Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Now back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you, Anna, and we are back. So, Patrick, you're about to jump into a part of the world that so often gets overlooked in its history, but not anymore. 
let's get into it. So yeah, when um, we started this first episode, I knew very well you were going to be looking into uh, Christianity, the birth of Jesus and the Roman Empire, all that. And I wanted to go sort of further afield because I know that quite well. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know of that story quite well. So I wanted to explore somewhere else. Like what else was going on at this time? When we think of 1 AD, I'm sure most of us do think of the birth of Christ. It's just, it's synonymous with it. It's named after him. So I started to look around, see what else was going on in the world at that time. First off, I went to look for what was going on in America at that time. And I could barely find anything on that. There's, we have very little history on that. However, I then went off to look into the Far East and I found out about the Han Dynasty. And it's this time in history with the Han Dynasty I want to share with you today, Paul. So it's interesting how history has been split into BC and AD. China itself was actually going through something of a split itself at this time or around this sort of time period. And that is with the Han Dynasty. Now, I'll give you some background on the Han Dynasty. Started in 206 BC, so it wasn't new by any stretch of the imagination by 1 AD. Definitely wasn't new. But this Han Dynasty is really considered the golden age of China and their history. Huge amounts of things happened in the Han Dynasty at this time. Many uh, great inventions were made by the Chinese in the Han Dynasty, stuff we're still using today. Have you heard of uh, gunpowder and compasses, Paul? Well, I think it rings a bell. (laughs) Yeah, they invented it all the way back then. They had gunpowder, they had compasses, they invented paper and printing, and even sort of stuff like wheelbarrows, stuff that like, you know, might seem silly now to mention a wheelbarrow, but that would have been monumental at that time to have something to cart uh, goods around in like that. It would have been amazing, amazing. Even the Hun characters the Hun dynasty used uh, were the basis of the modern Chinese alphabet. So they were a, you know, a hugely influential time in Chinese history. And it was a very interesting life if you were living in the Han Dynasty at that time, especially depending on where you were living. Life in the cities were tough, as you can imagine, unless you were wealthy, of course. Well, life in the countryside, that was tough too, but it was easier. Hard days work, good pay, that sort of thing out in the countryside. And a lot of people in the country respected Confucianism. I'm sure are you aware of Confucianism? Well... I think it's pretty fair to say that it's had a very, very deep influence in and Mm. around Mm -hmm. East Asia. It's certainly deeply ensconced even in modern Chinese culture, probably Mm -hmm. in ways that that the Chinese or other East Asians may not entirely be cognizant of on Mm. a daily basis. It's simply so ingrained. Yeah. So as you know, obviously with Confucianism, it's a lot of respecting the elders, that whole unwavering respect towards the elders because they are older and wiser than you and i mentioned that specifically because um it's going to come into play with what's going on at this moment of time so as i mentioned we have the hun dynasty and the hun dynasty was actually going through something of a lull period at this time despite being the golden age of chinese history things were on a bit of a downer and that was primarily to do with their emperors their emperors kept on dying and as we know with monarchies and emperors You need the child to take the throne once you're gone. And this was the problem. They kept on dying without having any children to take over. And this just kept on happening. We had a string of emperors come and go really quickly before they could create an offspring. And that's where the main character in our story today comes into play, Wang Meng. 
So Wang was born in around 45 BC. And as you can hear from his name, Wang Meng, he wasn't a Han at all. In fact, he only got into the Han dynasty due to being the nephew of one of the previous emperor's wives. So it was a bit of nepotism coming into play there. But however, he was born into a very distinguished family. His father died young. And Wang Meng was known for being very humble and he gave respect to all, very honest and impartial. And that sort of honesty and impartialness will once again be coming into play. I'm curious so, about something, though, Patrick, oh, yeah. if I may interject. Hmm. No, that's fine. How much of that, in your estimation, was Meng Wang trying to spin a certain narrative about him in order to fulfill his later goals? Hmm. I think that could have come into play quite a bit. Like I said, he's very respectful and honest. And yeah, it could have very well have been this impartial and honesty, as we'll look into later on, did send some of his own family to prison. Maybe he just wanted them out of the picture for various reasons. So maybe he spun this image around himself where he used his honesty, where some sort of a good thing, he was really using it as a negative thing. And as I mentioned, Confucianism will come into play of this. He was an older man by the time he got into power. So part of me thinks people just respected him because that's all they knew. So let's cut to about 1, 1 AD. And in 1 AD, Wang Meng became the Duke of Annam. And what's so important about this is he was the first ever Duke in the Han Dynasty. Before this, Dukes didn't exist in the Han Dynasty. And the first Duke of the Han Dynasty wasn't even a Han, which is uh, crazy in my eyes. I think, yeah, that's, that just shows the power this guy had as an outsider infiltrating this dynasty. Before that, however, in 1 BC, I also mentioned this first, he helped put Emperor Ping on the throne when I of Han died childless. So, and the thing here, Ping was just nine at the time. So Han Wang Meng put this kid on the throne, just sat him there. And even though this uh, Ping, Emperor Ping, was emperor, Hu Jing was actually really steering the wheel of the Han dynasty at this time. Well, see, I think that's very, very interesting. And it mm. definitely brings up many, many different comparisons in history. But specifically, mm. when you're dealing with a monarchy, the idea of a regent acting in the name of a child monarch, yeah. influencing yeah. them and ultimately trying to mold them as they get older in, in order to consolidate yes. their own power. So what's interesting here, you mentioned regency, and we'll get onto that a bit later on. Wang Meng wasn't officially his regent. He was just playing behind the scenes. So we'll talk about that later on, but he wasn't even officially the regent. Everyone thought this kid, Ping, Emperor Ping, was the emperor. But it really was. Everyone also sort of knew it was actually this guy running the throne unofficially. But anyway, between 2 to 4 AD, and as I mentioned, some uh, time periods will be a bit sketchy this early on in history. Wang married his daughter to this young emperor to help secure his power and make sure Ping's family wouldn't get in the way. And there were objectors to this. Not everyone was happy about this happening, including Wang's own son. And like I said, due to his honesty and impartialness, Wang locked up his own son to prison and he died there. That's just how impartial this man was. He didn't let anyone get in the way of his power, including his own son. And yeah, as I was saying, that just shows, even though people respect him for his honesty and his impartialness, obviously someone was going to be on the receiving end of that. And sometimes it was his own kid, which is just crazy. So by 3 AD, the Han dynasty were really happy with Wang. 
But however, with emperors dying young and childless, they were worried the heavens were showing that the Han Dynasty had run its course. Things like this were really big in uh, Chinese history and in a lot of history, like omens, good omens, bad omens. And that came up here. They had a good crop harvest in 3 AD. And this showed the Chinese people, they saw this as a sign and they saw this as the gods were happy with how Wang was running the country due to this good crop harvest. I'm sure good omens and bad omens will pop up a lot more in our time and in this podcast. And people put a lot of stock in them at the time. And even though it might sound silly to us, as we said, the past was a different country. And that's, I think, going to be quite the motto of this of this podcast. Oh, I think there's absolutely no doubt yeah. about it. Just especially mm-hmm. when we're going through it with a fine-tooth yeah. comb like it. Yeah as we yeah. proceed you've really got to remember this was it was a different time it was basically a different place despite geographically it was the same place that's all there is to it sure that rock might have come from the uh, Han dynasty but <laughs> yeah apart from the time it's it's such a different place but anyway so as i said about regency in 5 to 6 a.d wang Meng was officially going to become the regent for ping which was good However, there's the slight issue that Ping died, which isn't the best of things. Some people even actually thought he was murdered by Wang Meng himself. That's kind of like a big mystery of history. Did Wang murder Ping? We don't really know. But however, this led to Wang to scramble for power. He needed to find some child to put on the throne so he can manipulate this child from back and still be in power. And eventually he did find a, a child, this kid by the name of Ruzi Yin. And something else I need to mention right now, apologies for pronunciation. Viewers of Name Explain will know I struggle with pronunciation. I have done some research before this, but if there is any words I say a lot wrong, I'm sure you guys will let me know in the comments. They never fail. <laughs> they never fail, trust me. If you ever want to get a lot of comments on a uh, video or a podcast, just say something wrong. It helps really well. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> with uh, Ruzi Yin, Wang did officially become his regent. And it's actually thought that despite being emperor, this young Ruzi Yin was practically under house arrest. It's thought he very rarely left home, even though he was this emperor. He was an emperor in his own kingdom. And it just sets the image of the kind of person Wang was. Clearly, this was somebody who had a great deal of desire for power, almost mm-hmm. in any way that he could possibly accomplish that. And for all mm-hmm. intents and purposes, it, he did. Yeah, he did. And as we'll see, between 7 and 8 AD, more and more people started to believe that Wang should become emperor full time because he was basically emperor anyway. And what's interesting is there wasn't much resistance when he took on the throne. Many felt the Han dynasty had lost its heaven granted mandate to rule because of the emperors dying and not having any children. Many good omens proved to the Chinese people that they were, that Wang Meng was fit to rule. And with this, he established his own uh, dynasty. He took on the throne full-time in 9 AD. This went more or less quite smoothly. There was a minor uprising in 7 AD, but that didn't really stop anything. So yeah, in 9 AD, Wang finally became emperor, taking over from the infant Ruzi Yin. But however, due to not being a Han himself, he couldn't really run the Han dynasty. They were happy for him to take over, but it couldn't be the Han dynasty, so he set up his own dynasty called the Xin dynasty, which meant new dynasty, which makes sense as it was a brand new dynasty. 
And with that came the end of the first half of the Han Dynasty, which is now known as the Western Han Dynasty. And I mentioned there the first half. Even though it sounds like the Han Dynasty just ended, it's going to come back, believe me. And we'll probably look into that a few episodes down the line because, uh, spoilers, the Xin Dynasty and Wang Meng as emperor doesn't go too well. Uh, anyway, that's another question. That's another story for another time. Certainly. And when I'm looking through your show notes, mm. I find you make a very interesting notation, which is echoing Joseph Stalin. That's a character who came to mind straight away when I was looking into the history of Wang Meng. Straight away, I have a fairly good knowledge of Russian history, and Stalin just came to mind. You bring up Stalin. Uh, Stalin mm. is a figure that, you know, when it comes to the great, and I mean great in terms of stature, not in a moral context. Mm. Mm-hmm, yeah. As as the prominent. 20th century European, or in the case of the Soviet Union, Eurasian, yeah. totalitarian leaders, I've always found him to be far more fascinating than Adolf Hitler in particular, who, of course, everything revolving around him has literally become a cottage industry in terms of media yeah. itself, because, yeah. Yeah. you know, based on the actions and history and everything that involved the Third Reich... Mm-hmm. In the last 70 plus years, Hitler has become a all-purpose figure of pure evil. And yes, yeah. Whereas prior to that time, when people were making references to, you know, terrible people who achieved immense power, they mm. basically dove into history and used a variety of different rulers yeah. in order to make their point. So Stalin is very interesting in this case because for me personally, Patrick, yeah. as far as history goes, I take a great fascination in how power is accumulated and then yes. how power is exercised. Now, obviously, um, there are big differences between the Han Dynasty and the early Soviet period, but there definitely seems mm. to be similarities. And, you know, I tip my hat to pretty much the godfather of anything having to do with understanding Joseph Stalin, the uh, mm. Princeton professor, Stephen Kotkin, who in the last couple of years has re- released two of a projected three-volume Cradle to Grave and Slightly Beyond biography mm. of Stalin. You mentioned, and, yeah, yes, you mentioned yes. these to me before, and I need to read those books or audiobook them probably. Well, let's put it this way. If you go the audiobook route, that's probably good because the physical version, mm. if you drop it on your foot, you're going to the emergency room. <laughs> yeah, so, audiobook for sure for me. And he does a really good job of highlighting how Stalin accumulated power within the system that existed mm. post-October coup and basically the development of the Soviet state. And in this case, the similarities, at least to me, and I'm curious to hear what your thoughts on this are, Patrick. Mm is mm. Stalin did a fantastic job of hiding his hand. Very, yes. very similar yeah. to Wang Meng. You know, for mm. the most part, his comrades that had known him for years as, as members of the Bolsheviks knew he mm. was completely dedicated, but they never saw him as a potentially physical threat to them. No, yeah. And, and so, you know, he... He obviously makes a name for himself in the underground revolutionary part, specifically with Lenin, because Lenin knows he'll mm. he'll do whatever it is he asks of him and do a very good job of it. 
And when it comes to building the Soviet state, they give him this position of mm. general secretary of the party. And British historian David Reynolds, who does a fantastic BBC mm. documentary on Stalin and specifically Stalin during the Second World War, described that position of general secretary as the keeper of the index cards. Yeah. But on top of that, he slowly accumulated more responsibilities that had nothing to do with the original position no, to yeah. the point where he was even in charge of Lenin's health care after, you know, he's he's had several of these strokes and he's out of the picture. Mm. And by the time Stalin is, excuse me, by the time Lenin is gone in 24, it takes about four years for Stalin to get that grip on power. And he fooled over, everybody yeah. along the way. And that reminds me so much of Meng Wang. I'm curious what your thoughts yeah. are on that. When I was reading this, Stalin came straight to mind as just sort of power hungry. And despite being so power hungry and being ruthless, you know, killing his own son, supposedly killing a child, everyone still loved him and respected him for it. It does appear Wang Meng was amazing at not showing his hand, as you mentioned. Nowhere for my research did I find like history, actual like sources from that time period or people saying how much they disliked him a lot of people are saying how much they enjoyed him and we have proof of that people wanted this guy to take over they could have said no and i'm amazed they didn't say no and that's something i found interesting with this it was the han dynasty's ability to change from tradition i think with the past and history we always imagine people were very strict and respected tradition and they didn't. They went, no, we're going to not abide. Just because these people are having kids doesn't mean the Han Dynasty has to come to an end. We can break away from that. And we pick you, Wang Meng. We pick you to be our new leader. And I found that incredible. It just shows how much they cared for him, despite how unappealing he seems to our modern ears and eyes. You know, for me, especially in the period in Roman history and where we start off, hmm. being under the rule of Augustus, it's amazing mm. how how different the thinking is in certain respects because the one thing Wang Meng apparently couldn't overcome was the fact that he wasn't mm. a Han. Yeah, and there didn't couldn't overthrow that. There didn't seem to be any route for that to occur. Whereas yeah. if you look at the transition of power between Julius Caesar and Octavian, who we know mm. now as Augustus, it was a far more fluid system basically because they were creating something in Rome that didn't really have any real foundation yet, which is mm. dynasty. So ultimately, yeah. you know, Julius Caesar is murdered and he has a will. And that will dictated because he didn't have any children that would be considered proper lineage. He definitely had children, mm. just mm. not by the right women to do it. And, oh, he, yeah. and in his final will and testament, and the most important part of that was who he decided to succeed him. And in this mm. case, it was his grandnephew, Octavian. Mm. Who, of all people. Yes, who when he arrives on the Italian peninsula and in Rome and finds this out, you know what he does, Patrick? What does he do? He assumes his great uncle's name he starts going by gaius julius mm. caesar now think mm. about the political how politically adept that was because yeah when he was taken out 
in in the murderous coup, you know, the, the conspirators, and in this case, you know, the most notable one being Brutus, were mm. very, very scared about how the people would react to this news, as well as the various allegiances from the military that had been under Julius Caesar and mm. what brought him to power ultimately, mm. and that Octavian has the political insight to assume that title and ultimately yeah. use that to begin building the infrastructure, specifically military infrastructure, mm. to ultimately take down his biggest rival a little further down the road in his case, but before our show actually starts, which of mm -hmm. course is Mark Antony and yes, the yeah. creation of the triumvirate where the empire is split into three effectively military dictatorships, but where mm. Octavian ultimately overcomes this, takes out his rivals, most notably mm. Mark Antony, and yeah. doing it from the very beginning with the nucleus of knowing to assume his, what ultimately became divine based on mm. A edict that came out of the Roman Senate shortly thereafter, great uncle Julius Caesar. And I find yeah. that fluidity and the formation of tradition very interesting when you compare it to a place like the yeah. Han Dynasty. Yeah, where it is odd, despite the fact they were so happy for him to take over, they didn't make him a Han. And from what I could tell, there was no way for him to become a Han. And especially as his father died quite young. I don't know what happened to his mother, but I'm sure, she, I imagine, I didn't read she died young either. But you'd think maybe that father dying young, you'd think that'd be, maybe they would have married off his mother to a Han or something like that. But no, apparently they didn't. He could have easily have had a Han stepfather that could have got him in, but they didn't even seem to do that. Well, that that is very interesting. Yet, he hmm. still managed to pull it off, at least He's for a little while. Yeah, and as we will see, it definitely was for a little while. I don't want to go into too much detail, but here's a Shin Dynasty. Very interesting time in history. Just 10 years or so where he was in power. And despite how eager they were for him to uh, take over, that eagerness soon disappears. <laughs> well, the reality of power is, one, achieving it. Two, keeping it. Yes, yes. Which is a whole different story. And in the case of Wang Mong, and you kind of touched mm. on this a little earlier, if you could expound upon a bit regarding his treatment of his family in his ascension to power. So he did have people he cared for. He definitely did have people he cared for. He had a wife, I believe. I haven't written anything about her here, annoyingly. But he was married. He had children. And he did care for them. He was very respectful and humble to them. But unfortunately, if they got in his way, that was the end of it. You know, he could turn on you just like that. If you were, you know, you could be his own son. You could be, he, he married his own daughter to the young Emperor Ping just to solidify his spot in the dynasty. He cared for these people, but he cared for himself more, I think is the best way to put it. You know, there's an excellent anecdote, certainly not from this era, but, mm. you know, we seem to have stumbled upon the reoccurring theme of power and how mm. it how people get it how they maintain it and how it affects them and there's an excellent mm. anecdote that i think really paints this picture and it actually has to do with henry kissinger okay yeah a bit 
a, a, a bit little bit down the, line. Little bit further down the road, <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah. it means something. Well, in any case, yeah. so many people wouldn't know necessarily that Henry Kissinger was actually considered himself something of a playboy. If you can imagine that, <laughs> especially with the you know those really thick dark frame glasses and that yeah and and, and yeah. that very uh, professorial and magisterial way in which he chooses to comport himself when in power yeah. and not. I think my image of Henry Kissinger comes from Futurama when he's just a head in a jar. <laughs> oh God, I love that show. Yeah, it, it really hits on things in a way that it just it just doesn't hit in others. Well, no, it's, it's great stuff. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> in any case, when he was first Richard Nixon's national security advisor, and then mm. later uh, his secretary of state, he dated a lot of high-profile women, movie stars, mm. models, things of that nature. And one of them, and don't ask me which one, had a had a very interesting way of describing Henry Kissinger and who he was. Mm. She said, Henry never had sex he never had time for it mm. for him power was both the foreplay and the climax <laughs> that's really interesting yeah and just shows how much someone like henry Kissinger valued power that he, he valued it above uh, sex as we know a lot of people tend to enjoy yeah yeah absolutely so much of our <laughs> natural drives are, are, are yeah. surrounded by that you know just that natural desire to procreate yeah. But I think in many ways, and of course he's a, a lot of people have very, very differing and heated opinions regarding Henry Kissinger, and that's mm. not what's mm. in question here. But I do get the feeling that that particular description, as apt as it is, probably could apply to so many of the people that you and I are going to cross Yeah, in the entirety of our project together in AD history. A lot of hungry people filled with desire. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if you could give us a little cliffhanger for what comes next for Wang Mong, I want to know. Well, like I said, his new Xin dynasty, the great dynasty that's supposed to take after the Huns, only lasts about 10 years. The love people had for Wang and his eagerness to take over disappears. And with uh, this some quite big spoilers... With Wang Meng's new dynasty ending, he ends as well. I won't say any more than that. Well, we won't have to put on the, the, the spoiler sirens just yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. You are listening to the AD History Podcast. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle at PKD and History, as well as on the social media news platform Quartz by searching Paul K. DeCostanzo. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Yes, thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found, 
Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.